Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, your host, and I am in New York City. In our studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, we have Ed Luce of the Financial Times and Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University, and in beautiful Rome, Italy, because California was not quite good enough for her, <laughs> and she had to do better. Corey Shockey, um, undoubtedly fresh from a meeting with the pontiff. Um, we will get to that. Um, but this is Deep State Radio, and we welcome you to this episode. Guys, I was thinking over the long Thanksgiving weekend um, about the state of U.S. foreign policy. And in fact, I was reading about the Sochi summit that had t- taken place by with Putin and Erdogan and the Iranians. And I thought to myself, you know, this Sochi summit feels a little bit to me like Yalta 72 years later. Now, Sochi's not that far from Yalta. It's only about 780 miles. Um, And uh, it's, you know, Yalta at the end of World War II, the Allies divided up Central and Eastern Europe. And here, it seems like Putin and Erdogan and the Iranians are talking about how they're going to divvy up and manage essentially the northern tier of the Middle East. Now, what was especially striking to me about this was that the United States was at Yalta, and it really didn't play much of a role in this discussion. And it seemed to me to be symptomatic of the broad withdrawal of the United States from having almost any influence on almost any issue of foreign policy, including those that we set as priorities. So in North Korea, we say, well, the Russians and the Chinese are going to take care of it. We say trade is important to us. The way we deal with it is we withdraw from agreements, but we don't actually initiate anything really, uh, and so on. And so, you know, this is a void, and it's it's a different new kind of a void. And so I was wondering how that all looked and felt to you. Corey, you're closest to the action on this. Why don't you start? Uh, Yes, David, I agree with you. I think possibly the biggest strategic mistake the Trump administration is making is not realizing that everybody else is moving on, right? They think they can walk away from the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership and they can use American leverage to drive better bilateral deals with all of these countries. And nobody's actually interested, The Australians and Japanese are continuing to move TPP forward without us, for which I am grateful. I think they're doing us a favor trying to keep something important for our security and prosperity moving when we are failing the leadership test. 
but it is absolutely true that the that the enormous gaping yaw in the Trump administration strategy, not that there's only one, I can hear you, Rosa, um, but but it it is absolutely true that they seem not to understand that the world's moving on without us. And that if we don't take initiative and act in ways that are in other people's interests in addition to our own, others are gonna take initiative and exclude us. And we are gonna be scrambling to try and establish um, our utility to the conversation. You know, we were the rule setter of the international order and President Trump acted as though that were a burden rather than a privilege, that other people invited us into their problems and helped us establish the patterns of behavior that all of us, every country would agree to be constrained by. And we got legitimacy because as the strongest power, voluntarily constraining ourselves legitimated us in the minds of powers that couldn't set the rules of the order. And President Trump is just, you know, he's like a sailor on shore leave in the 1920s, the way he's burning through American credibility. Careening <laughs> drunkenly around, uh, causing havoc, getting into brawls. Exactly. That is exactly <laughs> Getting weird diseases, probably. For. Yeah. You know, the, the funny thing is that I do on leave. Yeah. I, I, for some reason, I ended up with the imagery of, you know, on the town and dancing and sleeping. <laughs> you know, so, I don't, I don't know. That's my problem. But Rosa did Corey. <laughs> you don't know enough sailors. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Corey, uh, Rosa, did Corey predict your thought processes well, properly? Yeah. I mean, I, it's so I I was thinking to myself. Um, I wonder what poor poor Jim Mattis is thinking of all of this, right? Um, there's a man who I think thinks we have a Middle East strategy or wants us to have a Middle East strategy, and we certainly have Middle East military operations. Um, uh, not only the Middle East, but 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 more broadly in in Central Asia as well, um, and. Yet, of course, it's entirely impossible after a certain point. You know, you can't the, – the U.S. military can't accomplish anything meaningful or constructive or enduring when you have military operations going on in a complete uh, strategic vacuum from a diplomatic perspective and a broader foreign policy perspective. And and that's the, that's the, the dilemma that we have. We have actually – Increased our our operational tempo and and the size of our troop presence throughout that region, um, but we're doing so in a complete vacuum at this point. Um, so so yeah, there there are multiple strategies within the Trump administration. The president is not playing along with the strategies of the rest of his administration to the extent that there are any. I mean, I think it's mostly at the Defense Department, the State Department, as we've discussed before, is increasingly just vacant itself uh, uh, with with senior diplomats fleeing or being driven out and Rex Tillerson doing God knows what. Um, so so I, I think it's it's in some ways this is the most dangerous thing of all, right, that that if we were simply abdicating our role entirely – that would be bad, 
Um, but we're, we're sort of doing – it's like the worst of all possible worlds where we're flailing around uh, with our military um, without – any kind of coherent strategic approach to what we're doing, um, which is maybe worse than doing nothing. Can I just say that Rosa is exactly right? Thank you, Corey. Wow. This is why Corey is my friend, and we're going to be co-secretaries of defense of Twitter. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> For those of you who don't know what that's a reference to, go back and look at my Twitter timeline. But I've decided to appoint an entire government based on Twitter performance. Uh, it is slightly unconstitutional because based on my careful scientific polling uh, and assessment of things, the, the new president of the United States is Vicente Fox. Well, um, that's all right. You know, we'll amend yeah. the Constitution. Who needs the Constitution anyway? Um, but he deserves it. His Twitter, <laughs> he deserves it on his Twitter performance alone. But Ed, you know, Rosa has left us with this great image that we've discussed a few times, which is diplomats fleeing the State Department as though it were on fire. And we've, you know, seen stories in the past couple of weeks picking up, of course, on our stories weeks before that, um, because Deep State Radio is where people come to find the news that they publish later, um, and which is why you're here, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> of course. No, you couldn't. Um, but but the but the point is that in in terms of uh, the State Department, we've we've seen that. Uh, um, Dip, minority diplomats and, and and aspiring diplomats and experienced diplomats, it doesn't matter what group you are, they're all leaving. And there is no area, I defy you. In fact, you're a well-educated, worldly man. People <laughs> constantly are saying, Don't defy I love Ed. to listen to Deep State Radio because Ed is well-educated. <laughs> <and worldly. laughs> um, I defy you to name one area in the world where the United States is taking the lead on an issue of foreign policy. Well, um, I believe that Tillerson is interested in the whole Arctic Circle thing. You know, there are all kinds of um, fossil fuel opportunities up there. But <laughs> I, 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 I can't think of a major geopolitical zone of the world, or at least established one. Um, well played, Ed. Where there is a well-crafted, uh, there is a well-crafted, well-thought-out, let alone half-executed Trump um, vision of, of foreign policy. Um, I, I've been straining, you know, um, amongst the sort of fleeing, fleeing the fire at the State Department and drunken sailors in the 1920s on shore leave. I've been straining to sort of go one up on. Rosa and Corey, and 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 hoping to find areas of disagreement, but but I don't. I mean, this is this is a strategic. This is uh, quite extraordinary that you know five five years after the uh, uh, U.S. administration, then under Obama, you know, gets involved in Syria for humanitarian reasons way before the rise of ISIS. Uh, we are now watching the final victory of Assad, who is, for all the ISIS beheading videos, responsible for about 80% of the deaths in Syria, according to, to okay, the various... Okay, Corey, I'm, I'm just not even going to ask the question. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm right. simply going to allow you to respond to what Ed just said. Ed is exactly right, right? <laughs> all of us Americans are all worked up into a lather about the threat of ISIS. And in fact, the Assad government is responsible for 80% or more of the casualties occurring in Syria. 
We Assad, are. And, and Assad is a big winner, right? I mean, Putin is a winner. Assad is a winner. Iran is a winner. And the reality is, as we've talked about before, the new Middle East is bipolar. There is a northern tier controlled by Iran, effectively, with the backup of Russia, which is kind of half a Sykes Pico, you know, a foreign sphere of influence and a big local actor. And the southern tier is a mess, with Egypt not really in control of itself, Saudi Arabia trying to take the lead, but of course it's got this 32-year-old leader who doesn't really know what he's doing or where he is going. Um, a bunch of small states that will follow him, sort of, but they're not sure when. They've gotten bogged down in some places that they're not really going anywhere. So the southern tier is in a bit of disorder. And the backup for them, the foreign sphere of influence backup, is the United States, which doesn't really want to play. You know, we'll sell them some weapons, but we don't really want to get our involved too deeply in the whole thing. And so this is a perfect example of the bad guys. I mean, the bad guys winning, getting stronger, and our allies in the United States being put in a more precarious position and the entire region being put in a more precarious position. So that I think right? that's certainly true with respect to what you describe as the northern tier. It is unquestionably true that the bad guys are winning in Syria and that Iranian influence has increased across the region. I, I hold the Iraqi government less culpable for that than perhaps some others do because I think they are democratizing and trying to carry off a very delicate sectarian balance that both we and the Iranians interjected into Iraqi politics. I'm, I, I'm not sure I agree with you on what you describe as the Southern tier. And I'm nervous about the choices that the, that the Saudi heir apparent is making. But, but I would argue that the status quo is manifestly unsatisfying with regard to both Saudi domestic policy and Saudi foreign policy. That the fact that he is at least raising the issues of intolerance and radicalization um, in the Muslim Middle East and that he is trying to bring accountability and an end to corruption in domestic Saudi policies, I am at the, like, I'm not Tom Friedman, but I am at the moment trying to give him the benefit of the doubt because Saudi is long overdue for change. I'm a lot more sympathetic to the domestic choices that they are making than to the foreign policy choices that they are making. I think Yemen was not an Iranian uh, influence operation, the Saudis made it into one with their choices about how to engage in that. It looks to me like Egypt's choices about dealing with the growth of terrorism in their midst are like textbook for how to increase terrorism. Um, and, and Egypt is becoming the new Saudi Arabia in terms of domestic intolerance, in terms of treating any legitimate political dissent as terrorism. Um, there are 50-some thousand political prisoners in Egypt just taken in the last couple of years. That's the creation of a new problem, not the solution of an existing one. Well, and I'd, I'd go well, even a little bit further than, than 
than Corey, uh, very, very consistent with what Corey's saying. It's not just that our strategic vacuum has uh, empowered states that are largely adversarial to U.S. interests. It's that we have been empowering, in most cases, the actors within those states who who are most adversarial to our interests. There was a, a very depressing piece in the New York Times uh, uh, just just uh, today or yesterday, I can't keep track of when things are published in the world of the interwebs, uh, talking about the ways in which um, Donald Trump has uh, and and his his drunken sailor like behavior has uh, dramatically empowered and increased the popularity within Iran of of the hardline extremists. Uh, uh, in the Obama era for all of its flaws and, and we certainly spend a lot of time criticizing President Obama for the failings of, of his strategic approach. Um, but the Obama administration and the Iran nuclear deal in many ways was opening up a lot of space for Iranian moderates uh, <clears throat> who are now in retreat uh, because Trump's rhetoric and actions has 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 enhance the prestige and the influence of the hardliners. Ditto in Russia where U.S. behavior and, and ironically, uh, arguably in some ways, the behavior of the American media and our, our reaction to Russian influence attempts during the election is enhancing Putin's reputation as a strategic mastermind and puppet master of the world and his own credibility and influence within Russia. Uh, not that it was not that it was small to begin with. So, so we're 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 not just creating openings for adversarial states. We are. We are inadvertently shoring up the prestige and power of the actors within those states who are most hostile to U.S. interests. Well, and even going a step further, aren't we, Ed? Because we're 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 not doing anything sort of net positive ourselves. Um, but the the people we are drawn the most to are bad guys. I mean, you know, it is quite remarkable, really, you know, Trump and 90 minutes on the phone with Putin. Who has Trump spent 90 minutes on the phone with? Trump and Duterte, Trump and Erdogan calling up Erdogan and, you know, having a nice, cozy relationship with him. Trump and the Saudis. Trump loves him some, you know, uh, autocrat. And, and and But anybody else, not so much. And 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 it and it and so it seems that he's placing the bets in these regions and and he had a call, call with Sisi also on on uh, you know following the terrorist attack there he's placing the the sort of moral support component of the United States in places where morality really isn't at a premium. Yeah, and you know not not forgetting you know the the love in with Xi Jinping and how Xi Jinping played Trump like a violin um, uh, on his Asia recent Asia trip, just to sort of give this um, a slightly selfish perspective from the point of view of a journalist. Trump's um, support for people who crack down on not just jail, but actually kill journalists, um, and his criticism of CNN International in particular, following Putin's criticism of, of, of that um, um, cable news outlet, um, is extraordinary. I don't know whether he knows um, the implications in terms of what security will be like now, how much worse for journalists on the ground in different places now that the moral as well as um, sort of authoritative support of the of the head of the world's largest free country um, is is missing. I don't know whether he knows that or whether he does know it or which is worse. 
Um, but so it's not just the strong men he loves. It's also their methods. And, and yeah, that's well, really disturbing. It, no, it's super disturbing. And, and Corey, let me bring up that we're dive deeper a little bit into what uh, Ed was just referring to. There was this remarkable coincidence that the president of the United States goes after CNN for the 160th time that he's done that. Right. Um, and, and, and talks about in specifically how CNN International does not represent the United States well. And at virtually the same moment, Vladimir Putin, who the president had spoken to a week earlier, announces um, you know, the requirement of CNN International to license itself as an agent of a foreign government and speaks ill of it. Then, by the way, as if you want a little more, you know, a cherry on the on the on this, the Egyptian government a couple days later then takes a crack at CNN using the fake news meme that that Trump has been selling. So, you know, he you know, he's sort of offering up the way to attack American journalists who put themselves at risk. But, you know, you talk about collusion, you know, we, we can only speculate. But the, yes. no, the, 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 has... co the coordination between Putin and Trump on this is amazing. So uh, this is President Trump is a person with deficient impulse control. And you can tell that because of how small the timeline is between when he watches something on Fox News and when he tweets um, damaging, ill-thought-through things out to the world, which is not only fraying the fabric of American civic discourse and political life, but is an enormous gift to the intelligence agencies of every adversary and enemy of our country. Um, on, the, on the CNN international staff, it has long been true that President Trump is inciting violence against journalists. And blessedly, our norms against that are quite strong in the United States. And, and news agencies have been heroic in refusing to be intimidated by the president's behavior. But if you were a journalist operating in China or... Uh, Turkey or Russia or South Africa at the moment. You're, the American government has just suggested that you won't be protected by the power of, America, of the American state. And that is both outrageous as a violation of our political norms, but also a great danger to journalists serving the common good in repressive societies. It, it's one of the things that is most upsetting of all of the upsetting things President Trump has done. And I think it applies both to journalists but also to, also to dissidents, human rights activists, etc. Um, I think that one of the things that has traditionally been a, been a really powerful tool for the United States um, uh, has been its, its – it's a moral suasion when uh, countries lock up a dissident or or lock up a human rights activist or put them on trial for something trumped up. Um, you know that the United States makes kicks up a big fuss and that that doesn't always succeed in getting the other state to change its behavior. 
but it not infrequently does serve as a, a, at least a moderating influence on their behavior because states who want to retain good relations with the United States, why pick a, why pick a huge fight uh, with the U.S. over things like that? And, and I think that in his comments about Putin, about Duterte and the Philippines, uh, et cetera, uh, Trump just across the board when it comes to dissidents, human rights activists, and anyone deemed undesirable by their state has made it crystal clear that he is just fine with both locking people up and with extrajudicial executions. So what are we for? You know, what is America for right now? We are for autocrats. We are for going after journalists. We're for going after human we rights. We are for child Trump molesters. family businesses and child molesters, right? Yeah, the child molesters. But what's more, you know, what's quite interesting also in the past week, we've seen other examples of this, is that there is a breakdown within the system of this United States government. It's not just people leaving the State Department, but as was referred to earlier, we have different policies even within the United States government right now. And I thought one of the most interesting developments was that Ivanka Trump is supposed to go off to India um, for an entrepreneurship conference that past governments have really sort of played up. Um, and uh, not only are, do you not have senior level White House officials there, the State Department has apparently explicitly said, no, we're not going to send anybody above the level of a deputy assistant secretary to support Ivanka Trump on this. She's on her There's own. There's nobody to send. <laughs> they don't have anybody above that level. That's perhaps <laughs> just as well, though. I mean, in this case, you know, absence is probably a, yeah. a good tactical move. You, <laughs> um, you know, uh, uh, interestingly, uh, although the State Department doesn't think Ivanka Trump's worth it, Modi, Narendra Modi, is giving giving her like a full full court reception there in Hyderabad um, and whining and dining her with, you know, all the guilted trappings to which a member of the Trump family is accustomed. Um, uh, uh, one thing Corey left out of her list of countries where, uh, you know, people cracking down on independent media and on indeed NGOs um, will feel embo emboldened is in fact India. Uh, and in India, uh, you know, the most, the largest democracy in the world, um, uh, under Narendra Modi, there's been a great chilling, particularly of local journalism in the non-English language media. There's been um, a, a closing down of foreign NGOs, the same kinds of tactics with NGOs that, that you see in Putin's Russia. Um, you have seen um, certain prominent journalists be assassinated by shadowy forces. Um, to encourage the others, as they say. And this great thing about being anti-India. If you're critical of the government, you are therefore anti-Indian. And the, the methods and tactics all come from the same rule book. You know, they, they vary in sort of taste and smell according to the country we're talking about. But Mod the Modis and Trumps and Putins of this world are all think alike um, and, uh, and tend to act alike. The fact that Trump is greatly more constrained um, by, by, by the Constitution and the, and, the, and the culture of the United States doesn't mean that you know, he isn't supping from the same cup. He isn't um, aiming in the same direction. Um, so the fact that Modi, to bring this sort of full circle, is um, whining and dining Ivanka is entirely fitting. By the way, for those of you who are listening who don't know that Ed has written one of the great books written on India in the recent past, you should go and look it up and, and, and you will understand better that Ed's insights onto this 
um, carry a great deal of weight. Um, David's absolutely correct on that point. I, thank I, you. I, I commend you. <laughs> David, David is absolutely <laughs> right for once. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate your support. No, thank you, David. Thank you. I, let, I, me, I, let me change the subject. I'm going to go right back to you, Ed. Um, obviously, there's a super important foreign policy subject that we haven't discussed here. Uh, and that's the engagement of Prince Harry. And since oh, you are yes. English and you might care about it, go ahead. Uh, well, this, is, sh- this is quite funny. My um, my um, colleague at the Financial Times, Peter Spiegel, who is our news, news editor in London, uh, who's American, um, received a note which he tweeted out this morning from a public relations agent saying, um, your newsroom must be really agog and aghast and <laughs> running around like headless chickens at um, news of Harry's engagement. And we can offer you this PR opportunity and that. And Peter tweeted out, obviously, this is another PR agent who doesn't read the Financial Times. So you're coming to the wrong person, (laughs) David. I have very little idea of celebrity news. We don't cover it um, professionally and personally. (laughs) I have zero interest in what the fifth or 25th person in line to the throne is doing with his love life. I'm kind of embarrassed to say, um, I shouldn't even reveal this, that I had never heard of this American actress who's about to become married. I haven't either. Who is she? I mean, she looks very nice. She seems like a nice person and she's very attractive. She looks very comely and and winning, winsome. And I'm sure she's uh, a, a very good human being and will be good for... Uh, Harry. Oh Good for God. Harry. Good for Harry. Okay. Okay. Wait a second. Wait a second. Ed used the terms Rosa, comely, I have to comely you, and winsome. Win- 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 if you know nothing, <laughs> Rosa, if you know nothing, you should not are wearing the tiara of optimism. I Well, yeah, I, I have to try it on every now and then because I know it grows heavy upon your head, Corey, <laughs> from time to time. But, but <laughs> I, I mean, I do think in a kind of generic way, despite the fact that I'd never heard of uh, what's-her-face, Megan, Megan, whoever it is, um, although we're sure she's very wonderful, et cetera, um, I, I did just to cement the tiara of optimism temporarily with a sort of rubber cement or something uh, onto my head. Um, I did think, <laughs> wow, it's I'm it's nice that a biracial American divorced commoner is marrying uh, a member of the British royal family. Um, that that this is a a good thing about the ways the world is the world for all the terrible terrible things we've been discussing, uh, and despite the imminent prospect of nuclear annihilation or catastrophic climate change wiping out the human species. Uh, it is a, a small advance of human civilization. The member of the British royal family uh, is marrying a biracial divorced American actress. Okay, well, okay, th- I agree with you. Yeah, well, let's let's examine that a little more closely. <laughs> because why anybody would want to marry that lout? I have no idea. But well, that's my point. You know, you're saying well, it's news that she's biracial or that she's divorced. He is an inbred product of a family that has primarily gotten to where it is by murdering people and stealing their money. Fair point, David. I protest. <laughs> no, look, Harry, I, I, uh, I just have these visuals. I know they're quite out of date of Harry at some fancy dress party right. dressed as a Nazi. <laughs> um, and, you know, in some Vegas hotel room having an orgy. And, he says um, he's reformed. He says he's older and more mature now. Well, marrying marrying a biracial American divorcee really is entirely <laughs> in keeping with that behaviour. Um, no, I, I agree with I agree with your point. We are finally laying the ghost of Wallace Simpson to rest. Quite so. Um, but it seems to be like fifty years too late, and I yeah. don't give a damn. I really don't give a damn about. I'm not a Republican in a smaller 
sense, I don't think. Why do you hate the Queen? I don't hate the Queen at all. I think she's a very nice lady who's never made a gaffe, which is pretty extraordinary given, uh, you know, the gene pool and the, those surrounding her. Um, <laughs> but I honestly don't give a damn. I just find it so uninteresting. <laughs> And I apologize to any, <laughs> any royalist of, compatriot. Of our, ER nerds have failed to read Hillary Mantel's outstanding speech about comparing the British royal family to pandas. That, you know, they don't have the breeding difficulties that pandas do. But the real question is, why do we have them in the first place? I commend it to your reading, my, my magnificent deep state radio nerds. Uh, Let me ask you a question. And this is getting a little personal here. But Ed, have you met the queen? I, I have. I have met the Queen too, Ed. I'd, I'd rather hear about Rose's <laughs> queen, queen experience. And, and I met Prince Charles too. <laughs> oh, I haven't. So you're one up on me. Yeah. He was very jolly and he discussed his children's uh, terrible taste in music. Uh, jungle music that yeah. they listen to. Right. Yeah. Young people today. Oh, nice. And they're <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for that, Ed. Um, um. No, I, I, I can, I'm, I'm being unfair. I haven't met Charles and I'm not, um, uh, I have nothing against him. I hang out all the time with members of the British royal family. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm. And, of course, Cor is hanging out with the Pope at the moment. But um, <laughs> yeah, The Pope is in Myanmar. Although I, I will admit that when I met the Queen— You say and this, it like and it's this a was, bad thing, David. This, no, no. <laughs> this was years ago. This was decades ago that I met the Queen. And I did have one of my very rare moments of really primitive uh, American nationalist patriotic fervor. Um, because this was when I was a, a postgraduate student at, at Oxford, um, and uh, Ed, I think we missed each other there by by just a year. So this was maybe in 1992, and it turned out that the Queen was the visitor to my college. That's visitor with a capital V, which meant that from time to time she visits. And so she chose to visit, and some of us uh, students were selected to be visited by her, and we were we were. <laughs> Carefully positioned in semicircles, um, which happened again when I met Prince Charles, by the way. I was told the prince prefers to meet people in semicircle formation. And I thought, that's interesting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start doing that when I go to parties and demand. Like <laughs> and, and we were given very specific instructions on our behavior, such as that if she touched us, we were to curtsy. And I had this sort of total primitive moment of, fuck you, I'm not curtsying, I'm an American, we fought a war against that. And Yay! <laughs> Luckily, the issue did not arise because she did not touch me and she, she was taking great pains to not have to touch anybody. She had a glass of orange juice in one hand, uh, a bouquet of flowers in the other, and her purse on her elbow, so she was in no danger of having to present this moral dilemma to any Americans. And we had just a, a scintillating conversation. Was there was there a hint of sarcasm in that final observation? I actually felt quite sorry for her because she had to go around saying, "So, where are you from?" And yes. people'd say, "Oh, I'm from you know wherever." And she'd say, "Oh, that sounds so interesting." And people'd say, uh, yes." And she'd say, "What are you studying?" And people would say, "I'm studying." And she said, "That sounds so interesting." And then she had to do that about a hundred times in a row. Yeah, to give her her her, her due, she she she's ninety one and she does a full time job, and she's a trooper, and she rarely, uh, rarely trips up. I mean, the, the discipline, the, the suppression of any human instinct there. She is never, quite ever remarkable. said anything like, I cannot stand another second of this. You are boring me to tears. Right. She, she gamely carried on. <laughs> I'm going semicircle on a after semicircle. Spree unless someone <laughs> yeah. says something interesting. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And Ed, did you 
have to curtsy or bow or something? I mean, you know, I want to I want to get the feel of what happened there. Uh, well, the, there was there was one event where I shook hands. She had white gloves on at oh, some event. Oh, you shook hands. Westminster Abbey. Um, and then there was another uh, event where a relative was getting um, some kind of an award uh, or, um, you know, some kind of commemoration. And so we went to Buckingham Palace and we had to stand up. All the relatives of people receiving these commemorations had to stand up when she came in, um, preceded by uh, a bunch of Gurkha guards with their swords out, and then some beef eaters sort of swayed septuagenarianly past. <laughs> and um, and then we all had to stand up and sing "God Save the Queen." And I hadn't until that we, we moment. We call that "My Country Tis of Thee." Yeah, yeah. Well, it's that's a much better song. Um, the you know um, the the it was only then with this sort of very benign old lady standing there in front of us but small very small and not you know not that that's entirely relevant but this all too human figure um that the words of our national anthem struck me as being really absurd and i thought about protesting by sitting down again <laughs> and then i thought that would be childish and yes. you know and so i didn't so i stood there and i didn't sing very loudly um but the words are horribly toadying they're utterly sort of height of empire. Make her They're victorious, happy, and glorious. Long to reign over us. God, <laughs> God save you, man. God bless you. Um, and it didn't, it just sort of, um, the absurdity of it, uh, but also sense of pity for her. I mean, it's it's just like being in, in a cage, in a golden cage your whole life. And I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Having said that, you could say that the Queen of England is getting her own back a little bit on behalf of her family, because as America has less influence on foreign policy, our relative influence compared to that of her is 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 leveling out again. Um, <laughs> you know, and uh, unfortunately, David, that is not true because you assume their play is static, as opposed to as we pull the the. Um, old-style English toilet flush cord from the ceiling and drop ourselves into the sewer underneath our house, the British are doing the exact same thing. So relatively, we are both dropping through trapdoors into it's, the sewer underneath our houses. It's a royal flush. Oh. <laughs> oh, my God. I couldn't resist gosh. that. I'm sorry. I withdraw I that. I can barely... <laughs> I can barely... Barely getting uh, out. Oh, dear. No. But, I, but I do feel compelled because it says in my contract I have to do this here. Um, Corey, do you know of any books on the transition between British and American hegemony? <laughs> Why, thank you, David. My book on this subject started being delivered by Amazon only last week. It's called Safe Passage. It's out from Harvard University Press. And I so appreciate you pitching slow and over the middle of the plate to me, David. Well, let me ask you one more question, Corey. Can you think of a better Christmas gift for your friends? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and since the deep state radio nerd who won deep state bingo by sending, by tweeting a picture of your latest book, Rosa's latest book, Ed's latest book, and mine, and even David Sanger's. Um, Sanger, Sanger wrote like, a book? I, I had no idea that Sanger wrote a book. <laughs> I feel like that's the sweepstakes, right? Like, I'm happy to be included in that category. There are four better books 
on that list than even my book. Not true. I'm sure that's not true, but I do agree that everybody should buy a nice set of deep state radio books for everyone on their Christmas list. That's an excellent way to uh, commemorate the holidays which, and the collapse David, of, of which, the United States. Which reminds me, some of our, our members of our deep state radio fan club have been inquiring about mugs and other such things. Can you give us an update on on, on whether they're going to be permitted into the silo to loot the uh, merchandise? Well, they're not going to actually be permitted into the silo to loot the merchandise, uh, although I, I we, we have begun to discuss a silo event a little bit perhaps in 2018. <laughs> um, and, no, I'm serious. I think that's a good idea. But, Yahoo! Uh, um, Is it a, it's better be a had, nice silo. Well, we've had several people offer their silos, and if other people have good ideas of abandoned nuclear missile silos that they think we could throw party in, please let us know. But we did get some response to last week's request for things to put on the sides of mugs. Um, several okay, the of them responses were, were magnificent. And well, I think some of them were, and those people will receive mugs, and we will announce those on next week's episode. But we're going to give out five to 10 mugs a week. So once again, this week, if you have something you think you would like to see on the side of a Deep State Radio mug or on the back of a Deep State Radio t-shirt, tweet that at us. And that is how you will win it this week as well as last week. And we're going to move on to something a little more interesting next week as contests go. And the first set of the mugs will all go out um, at the end of this week. So, yes, Rosa, lots is happening on that front as well. Hooray. 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 What? It's holidays. Um, I, I, <laughs> yes. want, I really want to strongly suggest that the tiara of optimism ought to be on the auction block on this and not just mugs. Yeah. No, no. We'll sell anything. These things we're giving away. <laughs> and, and just Somebody as our particularly optimistic <laughs> listeners will be surprised when they pay for it and they don't get it. But, you know, <laughs> that, they just get to keep the tier of optimism in a virtual sense. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It depends on how optimistic they are that it will someday be. <laughs> um, it's a kind of a test and a metaphor and meta. It's fantastic. Um, in any event, uh, let me thank you, Corey. Let me. Let me thank you, Ed. Let me thank you, Rosa. Let me thank everybody who's been listening. Let me thank all of you who've sent in ideas for mugs. Let me thank those of you who are about to send in ideas for mugs. And let me thank all of you who are going to join us in a couple of days for the next episode of Deep State Radio. Thank you very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions, and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.